Hello and welcome to Unstoppable. I'm your host, Kerwin Ray, and today we talk all things health and vitality with Dr. Joanna McMillan. Joanna is one of Australia's most trusted, recognized health, well-being, and nutrition experts, and she's actually spent well over a decade, get this, over 10 years as a presenter on The Today Show and The Catalyst. She's also got a PhD, which makes her pretty darn smart. I think they even call these people doctors these days. Written seven books. Oh, my God, I haven't read that many. And find out why you have trouble sticking to your diets or meal plans. Or Does this shit even work? And why it is so hard for most people to eat the right foods. So if you've ever wanted to get down and dirty into your nutrition and your diet and find out why you do some of the things that you do, but more importantly, how to do it better, check this out. It's going to be good. Listen up. So ladies and gentlemen, there's an absolute honor and a pleasure to welcome to us Dr. Joanna McMillan. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here. It's really exciting to have you. Now, for those people who perhaps don't know who you are, give us a hmm. little, what's the 30 second elevator pitch of who uh, Dr. Joe is? Can I call you Dr. Joe? You can call me Dr. Joe or just call me Joe. That's Joe, fine. okay. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's very informal. Dr. Joanna's the, the brand, but the brand, uh, yeah, right, I'm just okay. Joe really. Um, well, who am I? I'm, uh, you can hear from my accent. I'm originally a Scot, came here as a dietitian and a fitness instructor. Did my PhD here in Sydney and I've been here ever since. So it's 19 years now that I've been here. So really, I've carved a role for myself trying to talk healthy lifestyles and good nutrition science. So good evidence-based nutrition, how that impacts on our lives. And really, that's that's my goal is to try and really help Australians to get more out of life and give more to life simply by the way they live. It's so nice to hear you say that because most people in your space typically play in the weight loss space, Mm. uh, teaching people how how to lose weight. But it sounds like to me you've got you've got more of a holistic approach. than just losing weight. Absolutely. I mean, to me, you know, of course I have to talk about weight loss sometimes and I do run a, a program I call Deliberately Get Lean and, and my yep. book is Get Lean, Stay Lean. Weight is part and parcel of that and weight, of course, whether you're underweight or, or very overweight, it's a very visible sign of you getting your sort of diet and lifestyle out of whack. But there's lots of things that contribute to that and it's only one sign. So, you know, what I try to tell people is actually if you put your focus on health first and foremost, health and well-being first and foremost, then actually your weight kind of falls into it and there's a broad range of, of weights that can be healthy. So we live in an age where we have the microwave mindset. You know, we mm. want we want the results in 60 seconds. We want instant gratification, you yeah. know, because we see it on Instagram that we see the five-week challenge, the 30-day challenge, the seven-day challenge, you know, the three-day challenge. Mm. Why is it, do you think, because I, I honestly believe that psychology plays a fundamentally massive role in not just mm. weight loss, which is a component of health, but health in general. What is it that prevents people, you know, embracing health as a, as a way of life rather than just a fucking event that they do every now and then? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. I, I, I do think a lot of it is mindset, but a lot of it also is modern pressures. You know, if if we use weight, and but also health, just as, as that bar, as that measure, you know, modern life has become really difficult to live in a healthy way. You know, we researchers talk about it being an obesogenic environment, which just basically... <laughs> the obesity epidemic. Oh, it was terrible. There was pork chops <laughs> and chocolate cake everywhere. Oh, it's a horrible, horrible word. But anyway, I can't think of a nicer way to say it. But essentially all that means is that the way way that the demands that are made of modern life and the way that we're all expected to live our lives actually makes it tough well, to c- control your weight and to live healthily. I've got to push back a little bit on that. I'm curious, is that really the reality or is that just the excuse? Because we also live in a time where we've never had more a- access to information. We've never had more access to you know, pre-prepared meals, home-delivered meals and mm. that kind of a thing. But that, that stuff can also get expensive. Yeah. So 
yes, if you're living in what I call the bubble of, of you know, the, this part of Sydney, yep. um, and the same is true of, of Melbourne. I think, I think she says we're living in a bubble, Timmy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you live in one of the bubbles yep. uh, of Australia, then yes, you're lucky. You've got access to great quality food. You've, you know, you, you hopefully have a good job that you can earn a reasonable income. And yes, you can have home delivered food and so on. And, and some of these things are more affordable than other ways. But actually, if we look broadly across Australia, there are large parts of Australia where, you know, it is cheaper to go and buy a fast food meal to feed the family than it is to buy the fresh ingredients. And that makes me sad. You know, it, it, the demands of our jobs can make it hard to fit exercise and activity into your day. And it demands a lot of sitting at a desk time or sitting, whatever that might be, sitting on transport, sitting in a car. You know, all of these things can make it really tough. Now, it doesn't mean it's impossible. Like, yeah. Part of my role, I think, is to inspire people, motivate people and, and help to make it easier. My per personal mantra yeah. is how can I make healthy eating easier for Australians yeah, right. to follow and people around the world to follow. So when we look at weight, because obviously um, um, my my pedigree is really in business. You know, but mm. performance is a huge part of what I do and, and because understanding that I can give two people the same information, one will go and make tens of millions of dollars and the other one will sit there broken, miserable six months later, 12 months later, 10 years later and complain mm. the information doesn't work. And I see, uh, you know, health information often in the same kind of light. You, know, you can give two yeah. people the exact same information. One person will end up transforming their life, having loads of energy, becoming, you know, more balanced, more stable, more healthier, leaner, mm. live longer. Yet the other person will sit there and bitch and moan and say the information doesn't work. What is it that is, is yeah. it, what, 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 how do we get there? And what well, do we do? Lots of times people will say to me, you know, oh, I'm just not in the right emotional state or the, to, to make those changes. That the reality is that whether we're talking about business, whether we're talking about motivation, whether we're talking about health and wellness, you know, the ability for people to change is a really interesting thing to look at. You know, for the most part, we find it very hard. We find it difficult to change our everyday habits. So a lot of what I do is just about helping people to break old habits and to create new habits and I think part of our trouble is that we often set the bar way too high and we try to change way too many things at once yeah, right. so we're in this you described it as the kind of microwave concept we do want this instant transformation so we say right starting Monday I'm going to get up and go to the gym every morning at six and I'm going to be nicer to the kids and I'm going to spend more time with my husband and you know I'm going and, to make and, love and, at least once a week and I'm going to whatever damn. it might be you know we, <laughs> we set all these things that we're going to do and then we wonder why a few weeks down the line we go oh god I'm failing it so many of these and then we give up completely so actually what I believe is important is to just have a handful of goals that really are realistic you know the old-fashioned sort of smart goal setting yeah actually works and it's applicable to health and wellness so make it realistic think about if you're not a morning person I, you just won't find me in the gym at six in the morning but you might find me in the gym at nine in the morning or at lunchtime or in the afternoon even you know and I've got a flexible job mostly so I can make that work for me so you've got to find what is realistic for you what you know what can can you really do what is going to fit with your current routine and your current demands of, on your day and then start to integrate those changes and guess what you know if you make a couple of changes you know every week or every couple of weeks and you build on that then suddenly I meet you a few months down the line and you've made lots of changes yeah. but you're keeping them up so how do you get someone to think that way because again mm. I see the, the obvious barriers most people underestimate themselves in the overestimate themselves in the short term underestimate themselves yeah. in the long term and so saying to someone you need to set a realistic goal is like well yeah I'll I'll, I'll try that next. So is there a psychology to health? There is definitely a psychology to health and there's and, and part of, of what people like me do is is try to build on that mindset. How can I What's the basis of someone? a health psychology? Where does it start? 
Yeah, well, I think it starts with understanding where someone's at, yeah. you know, understanding that there are all these demands in life, you know, that there's not just when you meet, so if you meet someone and you're trying to coach them in business, you know, you don't just come at them immediately with what your advice is. You would try to glean out of them what's their current situation, what's their business in, you know, what are the barriers, where do they want, what do they want to achieve and so on. And I would do the same thing with someone if I was coaching them about changing their health and wellness. Where are they now? What are the barriers? What can we do to break down the barriers? What can we do to get them into that better mindset? Um, and sometimes it is a matter of going, okay, do you know what? You're not going to manage to change carbon what you're eating until we deal with your stress because your stress levels are preventing you from being able to make any of these other changes. So what I talk about with people are six key areas and importantly, they're underpinned by joy because I really believe that unless you have fun, unless I can get people enjoying yeah. a healthy lifestyle and a healthy diet, I'm never gonna get them to stick with it. So joy has to underpin the whole thing. You know, it's interesting you say that. We did some work with a guy called Tony Shea a couple of years ago. He uh, has a business called Zappos um, mm. out of the US. Uh, they're world renowned for having one of the most um, incredible cultures that translates into incredible business. Mm. Um, and he wrote a book called Delivering Happiness. And in this book, they, they actually um, uh, call from a, a research that was done, I think, in 1978 or it could have been 1988, whereby they discovered that people who are happy are 78% more likely to be successful in life mm. in general. Yeah, and they're likely to live longer yeah. too. You know, when we look at the blue zones, which are the areas in the world where people live the longest and they tend to seem to have the healthiest lives, one of the key things that comes out of that is that A, their stress levels are under control, but B, they're happier. They have joy in their lives and they have social connectivity. And actually, I think that is so important for, for you know, any kind of health change that you're trying to make. And then the six key steps that are layered over the top of that are food, of course, so the way that you're eating, <clears throat> drink in terms of what you're drinking just for hydration but also the other drinks that might be contributing kilojoules and of course alcohol is in there <clears throat> excuse me we've got exercise and activity which i split up because exercise is your kind of formal putting your runners on yeah. and going to do some exercise activity is just how active are you every Mobility. day yeah. yeah and then there's sleep and there's stress and often it's sleep and stress that kind of get pushed under the carpet and you don't expect someone like me to talk about but actually those things are just as important as what you're eating how you're living, how you're moving. Well, from what you've said, you, you, you actually point to stress being one of the most important things to deal with if you're going to mm. become healthy. Well, I see all of those six areas kind of like, you know, six overlapping circles because yeah. they impact on each other. Yeah, right. So if you're highly stressed, you might be drinking too much alcohol because you're using alcohol as your way of dealing with stress, winding down at the end of the day. You probably are eating badly because you're using food as an energy pick-me-up in the day. You're almost certainly not sleeping well because stress, of course, we know it affects that tossing and turning in the middle of the night. You're then not sleeping well, so you don't feel like exercising because you're exhausted, you're snappy with your partner and your kids or your friends because and your colleagues because you're tired and you're stressed. And the whole thing impacts on each other. So it's like a kind of snowball gaining um, momentum. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's really important for us to create a benchmark or at least a baseline of, because you talk about smart goals and being realistic. Mm. And when most people get healthy, it's typically because one or two things has happened. They're, they're, they look in the mirror and they're, they're fat and they don't like what mm. they see. 
or the doctor said to them, if you don't do something, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Mm. So when we look at good health, what's the baseline? What is good health? Well, I think start by how do you feel? Yeah. Um, if I talk to, you know, we're, we're talking a lot here about motivation to change and those important life events actually really are important because often the doctor telling you or, you're, you know, so, there's some incident that acts as a trigger for change. And that's what we see often with people who make major changes to their health and wellness and, and probably in, in other areas of their life too. Um, so, so that's the first thing. There often is that trigger. And that's great. You know, hang on to that trigger and think, okay, great. That can drive me now to look for the way that I want to change. And then the way I see it is to look at, well, it's kind of like this graphic equalizer. If you look at those six key areas, you know, which one is wildly out of whack? And that's the one that I need to focus on first. So I would be sort of drawing on the, the motivation of that person to go, okay, look, you know, it's your sleep that is really affecting things here. Unless we address sleep, we're not going to be able to focus on the other things. So it's, and, and sometimes it's little tweaks for everything. And actually I encourage everyone to do that. I do it continually on myself throughout life is, is, um, is to think, okay, how am I feeling today? Because yeah. that's your key motivator. If I tell you, Carwin, look, the way you're living your life dramatically is increasing your risk of having diabetes in 10 years or heart disease in 20 years, 30 years. That's not a motivator to, for you to change today. Does that mean I have to stop eating donuts? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I have a bit of a segue there. So, well, well, yeah, you know, this is this is where it comes down to to looking at those areas in your life and yeah. thinking, all right, what do I need to tweak? Where is out of whack? What can I get into place? And I can guarantee the way I can motivate you is to think about how you feel. Yeah. And people know they don't need to be told that they're fat. They don't need to be told they're unhealthy. They can feel it. You but know, is it you fair to say when that with some people it's degrees? Because I, I know for myself, like I was a competitive athlete all through uh, high school into my early 20s and, you know, I managed to train up until my late 20s. And then all of a sudden, I, I almost woke up one day, and I think I was like 38 or 39, and I was fat. Mm. And I mean, I had like more chins than a Chinese phone book. I was like <laughs> proper fat. And I remember thinking to myself, how did I get here? Mm. And because I think sometimes, because it's one degree every year, you know, 100 grams every month. It and after up. a while, we go from go thinking, okay, I know what feels good, to thinking the way I am feeling right now, that is just feeling good. So if, if we're at that point, how do we know if we're feeling good? How do we know if where we're at is actually feeling good or if it's just the fact that we've got mm. condition or, or, or used to where we're at? Yeah, well, look, what you point out is exactly what happens. To, nobody gets fat overnight, although you might feel like people talk about having a fat day. You know, just because you ate a slice of chocolate cake or you had those donuts yesterday doesn't make you fat today. Fat, unfortunately, does creep up very, very slowly. Fat is energy-dense stuff. So you're seriously overeating kilojoules over a long period of time. And so that's what I used to tell people. I used to tell people, I'm not fat. I'm an I'm a nuclear storage plant. I'm I'm a storage plant for energy, and I'm just getting ready to unleash on the world. Yeah. Well, yeah. there you go. You kind of are. You yeah. Know? And and that's also why, by the way, it takes a long time to lose body fat because you also chip away at those fat stores, and you have to maintain that energy deficit for quite a yeah, long right. stretch of time to get it off. So all this kind of lose 10 kilos in 10 days stuff is utter nonsense. You can't lose that amount of body fat in that amount of time. So so yeah, you're absolutely right. It does sneak up. You you also raise an interesting point about do people necessarily know what it feels good? Because I think about those people who have actually never been in their optimal health. They really don't know no, how good it can clue. feel. And, and so there is, and, and there is my challenge is yeah. to how do I actually motivate those people or inspire those people to recognize they could feel a whole lot better than they're currently feeling. And you're right. It's a, it's a challenge, but I'm, I'm taking it on. Two big <laughs> questions. Number one, why is it when I eat 100 grams of chocolate that I put on two kilos? 
Well, you know what? When you put on those two kilos, it might also be that you've you've stored up some glycogen. So, yeah, there we go. you know, glycogen is a big bulky molecule. It's our store of carbohydrates. So plants will store carbohydrate as starch. We store it as glycogen in liver and in muscles. And if you're fit and you look like you work out and you go to the gym, if your muscles are fit and you regularly do exercise, actually you get better. It's storing glycogen, you can store a bit more. Huh. But the reason there's a limit to how much carbohydrate we can store in our body is because it's bulky. You store every every molecule of, of carbohydrate gets stored with a massive amount of water. And that's useful when you're exercising, you break down the glycogen, that fuels your muscles. It also releases some water to help keep you hydrated. So, so it's a useful system, but it's a big bulky system. Yeah, right. That's why we store fat. So we've got a limited amount of carbohydrate. If you and I head outside and we start running, which I don't really want to do, it's a hot day out there. Apparently it's like 40 degrees out there. <laughs> it's really hot yeah. out there. So let's not do this. But theoretically, if yeah. we went outside, we started running, you know, within a couple of hours, we can hit the wall. The runners call it hit the wall. And that means you've used up all your carb stores. Fat, if we could just be walking and using mostly fat, we can walk for a whole lot longer because fat can keep us going for weeks and well, weeks. That and weeks. opens an interesting question that we kind of touched on before. This concept of fat adaption, mm. uh, which is becoming very popular with the use of things like intermittent fasting and the different types of mm. diets that you know produce ke- old ketogenic diet. Mm. So is it fair to say that the also not just what we eat, but when we eat is having you know a detrimental impact on the health that we're that we're experiencing in our everyday lives? Well, I just think we're bombarding ourselves with too much food too often. Yeah. You know, if you look at our ancestors in the past or you look at those blue zones, um, you know, things like fasting have been used for eons within mostly within religions, actually, and mostly for health reasons. And now it's being explored and researched um, for for its potential impact and weight control. And at, at the moment, the research is I certainly support it as being an option yep. um, because I think and, and that's what the research is showing is that it's le- at least as effective as more traditional sort of just reducing your energy intake every day. So I think for some people, it definitely is an option. One of my other key areas of interest, or rather it's two, and these areas are linked, is gut health and brain health. So I'm, I'm writing a yeah. book at the moment on on on, on brain and, and um, you know coming up with great recipes that are good for helping us to preserve our brains. But actually the brain is intimately linked to the gut. And well, the other a thing, nerve that connects the there two is the well, yeah. vagus nerve connects vagus the nerve. two. Vagus, yeah. So there's communication all the time, particularly from the gut to the brain. So what's going on in your gut is crucially important. So what certainly seems to be the case is that when you go without food for, and we're only talking short, even if you do what I call the overnight fast, instead of grazing into the evening and then eating the minute you're awake again in the morning, you know, having a proper 12-hour fast overnight um, without even doing something like intermittent fasting is is enough to give your gut a break and actually has benefits for the microbiome, which is the, the bugs that are living in your gut, actually gives your gut that break. So I think you're right. You know, part of our problem today is that this constant grazing, constant snacking all day long that yeah. hardly gets a break apart from when we're, we're sleeping. And that's a real issue. Because I don't think a lot of people realize the amount of energy that's required to digest food. And especially if you're yeah. eating, you know, food that is um, not like processed food, you mm. know, little caloric value, little macro value, it requires in most cases more energy to digest the food than you actually get from the food. And the fact that our body needs energy to repair, if it's constant, mm. and our 
intestines have the largest blood supply of any organ in the body. So if we're mm. constantly putting food into our gut, our gut is constantly drawing on the energy and the resources to digest it. And those energy and resources don't actually get the opportunity to go to the other parts of the body and clean up. Yeah, well, you're certainly diverting your body's attention and task to constant digestion instead of being able to then divert blood to muscles to go for a walk yeah. or to your brain to think. You know, of course, blood is always going to your brain, but, but you know, it's, it's really useful to be able to take that break from digestion. But the other interesting thing that just came to my mind is I was listening to you talk about processed foods. If you think of the gut as a great big long tube, essentially, Which it is. Yeah. It is. Um, the, one of the issues with eating too much processed food is, is not that necessarily you're taking more energy that you know it's energy dense stuff and it's incredibly easy to absorb that energy but it's nutrient poor but it's also all absorbed really high up in the gut and then you're not using vast lengths of the gut are not being used as they should and and that is part of the reason why we have so many people with gut problems today not just serious things like bowel cancer but irritable bowel and having problems with the gut bugs and and all this sort of stuff that goes on now with with gut issues and feeling bloated and uncomfortable and so on is is because we're not making full use of the gut as as we need to be doing and and the gut is that long in order to be able to digest and process and metabolize whole foods um, and if you feed that your gut whole foods the knock-on effect on physical and mental health is enormous so i think one of the biggest challenges that people have with being healthy is i think being healthy is being boring you know i can't drink yeah. alcohol i can't eat donuts i can't eat my cake but mm. the reality is we, we can actually have a little bit of, we can have our cake and eat it too because let's be honest what's the point of having cake if you can't eat it of course we of course yeah. we can and this comes back to that element of joy you know there is absolutely room for some cake donut you know a glass of wine a whatever a beer whatever it might be that is is your enjoyment and, and your factor in life you know because it comes down to the big picture you know I'm very much a big picture person we, we argue so much in, in the media about nutrition and we argue over the nitty gritty over is this diet better in this diet is it this is it that when we step back and we look at the big picture we understand how to feed humans and if the largest part of your diet your diet is is mostly made up of whole foods then there is that leeway and there is that scope to be able to enjoy whatever else it might be yeah um and and that's really important to remember and and you know and if you get people doing that then it also makes it more achievable to do long term yeah, exactly. it's not about following some extreme yeah. diet or never eating a whole set of foods again it's actually just about balance because I think, do you think it's fair to say that food has kind of lost its, um, it's, it's lost its place in society? Because once upon a mm. time we ate because it was what we needed to have the fuel required to go out and get more, harvest more, catch more, yeah. or go to work. And now it's become almost a form of entertainment where we consume fa- food in some cases either based on how, how it makes us feel mm. or we consume food based on how we are feeling and what we're drawn to. Mm. That's kind of emotional eating that you're touching on. I often call it swallowing your emotions with food. And and that can, you know, all of us eat for, you know, uh, Dr. Rick Hausman, who's the the author of If Not Dieting, um, Then What? And he talks about non-hungry eating is is his terminology. And I think that's a really nice term for it. And we all do it to some extent, if you think about it. You know, if it's your birthday and we share a birthday cake or, you know, we go out for a drink after this interview, you know, that's not us giving our fuel that we need to our body. We're, We're eating our drink 
thinking for other reasons. Yeah. Now, a, a, an element of that is what makes us human, you know, and your dog will also eat if it's not hungry, if you put something tasty in front of it. So will your cat. The cat might be a bit pickier. Um, but, you know, this is, the, it, so it's not a uniquely human thing, but it is part of what makes us human is that we make our food so tasty. And mm. since the advent of cooking, um, actually, we've, we've become experts at being chefs and cooks and making food more and more delicious. Now, I fully support that. I, I'm a foodie. I, I love to cook um, and I want my food to taste good. But it's also a luxury of modern life that we, we have this choice in food. And and the flip side of being able to make our food so tasty is that sometimes it's really hard to stop eating because mm. it's highly palatable. You give a rat in the lab a highly palatable, what you call a cafeteria diet, the rats tend to overeat. So it is this sort of balance of going, we want our food to be really tasty and enjoy it, but we've got to somehow still help our bodies to be able to control appetite be able to control how much we eat and not be, you know, led into this constant state of overeating because food tastes so good. Okay. So we've talked about the, the, the psychology of health. We've talked mm. about the importance of keeping it realistic when we start. So let's say we, we're starting to get our head in the right place. We're starting to recognize, okay, maybe what I think feeling good isn't feeling good. Maybe there's a better way to feel, mm. or maybe I can remember what it used to feel like to feel good. I'm starting to think differently. I'm starting to get realistic with my goals then what like how do we because you I, I like the fact that you're talking about one one size isn't going to fit all and mm. that's what you refer to with intermittent fasting but if someone doesn't know what size they are i.e what they should be doing where do they mm. start well you know by by making sure that you're getting your information from the right place yeah, you right. know there is so much information on the internet now that it can make it really confusing so the, the one of the key questions that i get from people whenever i do a public speaking event is that they say to me i'm confused now about what a healthy diet is mm. what a healthy lifestyle is even so i think that's the first thing is to just we, we, check because paleo came out was hot it gets slammed intermittent mm. fasting came out it gets slammed it's almost like everyone's got an invested in, or a vested interest mm. in slamming the other so it creates this high level of confusion yeah and when you look at the research though there isn't that much level of confusion we are researching and arguing yeah. over the details you know nutrition science is is a reasonably young science we only discovered vitamins and minerals last century so when you think about how young it is as a science there's still much that we don't know but we do understand the basics and actually even if you look at two seemingly diverse dietary approaches paleo diet compared to vegan and you think that these are poles apart and they're other uh, opposite ends of the spectrum actually they're they've got more in common than they do apart because <laughs> Tell that to a vegan <laughs> <laughs> or a paleo yeah. um, but, but what those what those diets have in common is that they both actually if you're doing it properly include lots of plant foods they don't include junk food they're their whole food diets it's just that the paleo guys are going to add their grass-fed beef and their and their you know um farmed their wild salmon or whatever and the vegans are going to add beans and legumes and, and tofu to theirs so you know it's it, it's 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 the common commonalities I think between dietary approaches that is more interesting to me and stepping back and looking You're at the right. big picture and then when it comes down to the individual there's individual choice so you can say what am I do I have any allergies and intolerances what's my cultural background you know I come from Scotland where I've got a mum who just thinks if potatoes aren't part of a meal it's not a meal <laughs> you know <laughs> it's, potatoes. Pot potatoes have just got to be in my world <laughs> you know but I have them in the skin and I cook them with my beautiful Aussie extra virgin olive oil and I make you know make the family homemade chips that way um, so you know it's it's about your culture your likes and dislikes you know if you really hate kale I can promise you you can have a really healthy diet and never touch kale so 
those things to me are just as important in your food choices as the nutrition science and you know what I might say is is yeah. a really healthy approach. And I'm all about flexible. You know, all of my I teach people a sort of template for eating, and then you layer over all the things that are really important to you, so that ultimately you end up with a diet that both is healthy, is evidence backed with the science about what we understand is good for us, but also that you really love and enjoy. Okay, and so the best way to, to push someone in the right direction is say start with what you enjoy that is in the good is there a way that you can summarize your template in a simple way yeah so the template is one two three four so yeah. picture your plate or yeah. your bowl half the plate is well i call it plant food but actually three quarters of the plate is really plant food so half the half the plate is veggies yeah. and or some fruit so at breakfast it might be fruit if you're having a muesli bowl or something like that the next is about a quarter of the plate. That's your protein-rich food. So if you eat meat, then it might be meat, it might be fish. If you're a vegetarian or a vegan, it might be your beans or your tofu. It might be dairy foods um, for people who eat dairy. The next slice on the plate is almost a quarter. There's a bit chopped out of it. That's your what I call smart carb. So these are the things that fuel the bugs living in your gut. So it's diversity of fiber that's really important. So smart carbs, I'm not a carb basher. It's refined carbs that are the problem. Yep. So when we look at things like whole grains and legumes, the potatoes in their skin, you know, those kind of starchy veg are all in that smart carb section. And then the last slice is number four, and that's your good fats. So avocado, nuts and seeds, nuts have got just bags of evidence behind them. You can cut your heart disease risk by about 50% simply by having a handful of nuts every day. So nuts and then our extra virgin olive oil is just a standout fat. Forget the refined rubbish right, that's on yeah. the supermarket shelves. Yeah. You know, great Aussie food that, that I've supported for many years. So that's your one, two, three, four. And if you have that in your mind and you think when you're filling your super, supermarket trolley, yeah. okay, I need a, at least half this trolley should be my veggies with some fruit. You know, have I got my whole, you know, think of that same model when you're filling your supermarket trolley. Yeah, that's smart. And there's a little bit of space outside of that that plate for the extras. If you're trying to get lean, you've got a bit of body fat to lose or you're on that bit of a health kick, nothing's wrong with doing that. You're, I, I think of it as riding a horse. I've always got my hands in the reins. Sometimes I've got to pull the reins in a bit. Yeah. I'm there right now because I had a big holiday over Christmas in January. <laughs> you still look gorgeous. <laughs> so, you know, thank you. I'm pulling the reins in a little bit right now, but then I can relax the reins again and then more of those extras can sneak back in. Yeah. So I kind of think that if we if we think on it that way, yeah. instead of I'm on a diet, I'm off a diet, I'm doing this, I'm on this, you know, I, these kind of months of I'm doing this fasting for a month and then it's all, it's all too chop change, chop change. You know, you kind of got to be on that horse holding your reins all the time. Yeah, right. The, when it comes to having the naughty things, is it also the timing of when we have them? Because one of the things mm -hmm. I've noticed, especially from a gut perspective, someone who's um, done a lot of work on their, on their gut to rebuild it, I, I've discovered that I can eat naughty things as long as it's not for dessert, which mm. is really interesting. I can, like if I actually have my dessert before I eat my main meal, my gut is happy. But mm. if I have my dessert after I eat my main meal, I tend to swell up a little bit like a whale. Mm. Is, is this something that is, is just unique to me or is, is this something, is there some science in this in terms of how these refined carbs mix with yeah. certain proteins and other carbohydrates, smart carbs, and create a little bit more gas or inflammation? Uh, not necessarily. I'm trying to think of, I haven't seen any research that specifically looked at the time. And the only thing I can me. think of is, yeah, we might <laughs> yeah, be an interesting project. I need you in the lab. <laughs> um, yeah, look, what, I, what what might be happening is is in terms of total volume of food, yeah. sort of all going through at one time. You know, if you imagine what's left over, then sometimes when you eat a whole lot of good stuff and you've had dessert on top, actually the fibers and all the good stuff that's in there can sort of carry some of those sugars right through further into the gut where potentially the 
bugs might then be fermenting those, you know, very easy to ferment sugars um, and then causing a lot of gas and, and pain. Yeah, right. That's okay. a possible explanation. So all the good stuff is kind of slowing down that digestive process. That's possible. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting is, is actually, you know, whether you've got good fun- gut function happening or whether you've got an imbalance going on there in your microbiota, whether you've got a gut that is either lazy or or too trigger happy. So we've got some guts that, that are kind of getting this constant chatter from the brain and they're sort of overexcitable. And then that's when you often get sort of diarrhea related IBS yeah. or, and some people will swing between the two, a slow sluggish gut leading to constipation or a gut that's, that's too trigger happy. And so all of those things that are going on in the background will then affect the way you can deal with whether it's healthy food or whether yeah. it's junk food. The other interesting thing that has been shown in research, and this is uh, one of my colleagues, Professor Felice Jacka, who I've been working with recently on the on the Catalyst Gut Revolution shows that we've been doing. Felice's work is very much in the mental health space, and and her work has has uh, and others have shown that in fact, you know, diet is directly related to mental health. That you have lower rates of anxiety and depression when you eat really well, particularly a Mediterranean style diet. But what she's also shown, and and the link is certainly part of that link, is via the gut microbiome. Um, But what they have also shown that even if you eat pretty well most of the time, if you have too much junk food, that is still negatively impacting your mental health because the junk food is still having an impact on your gut microbiota. So, you know, yes, while I support, yes, you can have a little bit of whatever it is, the naughty stuff, let it tip up too much, even if you're still in, you know, good shape and you're still keeping your weight under control, it can still be impacting both your gut function and your mental health. I I, would agree with that wholeheartedly. So coming back to the timing, if we're going to eat shit, when should we do it? Well, I would suggest that you just don't eat shit every day and that you do make sure that you compensate by eating less so that your kilojoules are are reduced overall. Because there's no doubt that, you know, eating shit on top of all of your other meals is just adding a whole load of unnecessary kilojoules. So, you know, I would say have it through the day is better. One of the worst habits that we see is that sort of grazing on rubbish food into the evening. It also impacts, you know, not just on on weight control, but it actually impacts on your sleep more mm-hmm. than anything else. So I would say have it through the day while you're being more active and you've got the the opportunity to perhaps expend a bit more energy and, and work it off. And just pay attention to portion size. I'm not long back from Japan. One of the things mm. that they do really well in Japan yeah. is that, you know, if you look at the cake shops around Tokyo, if you ever get the chance to visit Tokyo, look at the cake shops and they have tiny little beautiful, beautifully presented portions of cake. You look in a cake shop here in Sydney and it's massive serves. Mm. So portion size of your treat foods or your junk foods, whatever you want to call them, is is really important. Okay. So and I think gut health is is something that's often left out of the conversation when we talk about good health and well-being, Mm. even Mm. weight loss. Um, Mm. Because I know for myself, when I started to get my act together and I started to, you know, really focus on getting myself back to where I wanted to to get to, Mm. I was eating really well. Well, I thought I was eating really well. I was doing a level of exercise. I was hydrating really well. Um, but I still was feeling like crap. And mm. what I didn't realize was my gut from the 10 years of uh, you know, abuse yeah. with food actually hadn't repaired itself. And I needed to actually look at what I had to do to repair my gut mm. in order to repair my health overall. Because is it fair to say that it doesn't matter how healthy you eat, if your gut's not working properly, 
it's it's not going to necessarily give you the greatest advantages that you're looking for. Oh, for sure. Look, I mean, I firmly believe that the gut is right at the center of physical and mental health, actually. Yeah. So, you know, in the work that I've been doing in the last year in, in relation to, to um, the gut documentaries that we've been making, I've had the opportunity to interview experts all around the world mm-hmm. who are working in this space. So it's, it's you know, it was a fascinating journey. Um, and it's reinforced, you know, what I've long held and beliefs about that, that gut really is central to everything. If your gut isn't functioning well, your energy is impacted, your, you know, your ability to have joy in life is impacted if your gut is giving you grief. Um, so, so absolutely, we've got to look at gut health. The only thing that concerns me at the moment, and this comes back to that sort of flurry of information that there is and all sorts of, you know, sources of information is that there's a lot of nonsense out there Mm. about how to heal the gut, about what might be wrong in the first place and about what to do about it, even the kind of diets to follow. So I just had a word of warning about you just got to be careful. There's a lot we don't know yet about how to heal the gut. We're only just starting to be able to really to be able to determine and look and visualize because of new technologies, what's going on inside the gut, being able to measure effectively the microbiome is itself a a, a challenge. And then being able to look at, and we now do understand that there, we can have really low-grade infl- inflammation in the gut lining um, that previously wasn't being able to pick. You currently mm. can't, can't see it in a colonoscopy, you know, the traditional ways of yep. doctors trying to ascertain what might be wrong in someone's gut. So it's only these new technologies that are being able to illustrate that. And so we're just on the cusp of being able to understand, okay, what do we need to do to improve someone's gut if they've got problems? So we're getting there. And there are some really um, significant steps forward for people with IBS the low FODMAPs diet for example um, is one but even that now is being misused and misunderstood so I urge people that if you've got problems see your doctor first you want to rule out anything medical Mm. and if it is ascertained that it's down to gut health and the way that you're eating your lifestyle then see a dietitian who's experienced in things like IBS and in gut health and in the use of a low FODMAPs diet so that they can help you to use it in the way that it's intended to be used. It's not a diet for life. Mm. It's a short-term measure to get symptoms under control. And then as you have done, then you can gradually get to, because we certainly know the type of diet that's important for a healthy microbiome and for a healthy gut. So when we look at, and again, I think one of the biggest challenges that most people have is self-assessment. Mm. You know, most people don't know they've got a problem with their gut because, well, no, I always swell up after a meal. You know, I always get gas mm. after a meal. Uh, no, I've always been constipated. My mum was constipated. And I've always had a, yeah. you know, uh, a trigger-happy <laughs> squirt mechanism, or what they call it, the Hershey squirts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I use that term. I'm please, take by that. all means. <laughs> so I'm curious for someone, again, to, to hit the baseline and go, okay, well, mm. maybe what I'm experiencing isn't normal just because mm. I've had it my whole life, just because because maybe my parents had it doesn't this what are some of the symptoms of poor gut health yeah well well i think what you've actually touched on something that's really important and that is what is normal mm. because we also see people who um who actually don't understand that their situation is normal mm. so when i see people who have got really serious bloating and you know we're talking looking like they're pregnant sometimes after eating i've seen those people at that end of the spectrum but equally i've seen people who think that they're bloated when actually it's just normal gut function going on yeah, right. Right. Or they are a bit constipated and that's what's leading to the bloating, not some food intolerance. So because we're we're hesitant to talk about bowel, bowel health, 
I'm always perfectly happy to talk about it because I'm so accustomed to it. But <clears throat> if you think about a normal conversation, you don't chat with your friends or even with your partner. You don't tend to chat about how often do you have a bowel motion and what was the bowel motion like and what was the consistency. Consistency, shape, colour, smell. Yeah, how often Did it float? do you Did fart curling yeah. every day? You know, we don't yeah. really have those conversations. So, Well, welcome to a very comfortable place <laughs> because um, I started, I initially started fasting back in 2000, mm. but I started doing the seven to 10 day water fast. Um, mm. You know, now I do those twice a year um, and I obviously ended up moving into the intermittent schedule because it became more effective and more consistent. It was less event based. But yeah. I got to the point where, you know, twice a year I was going over to Thailand and I was just talking for, in some cases, a week to two weeks with people about shit <clears throat> and about what was coming out of the body, what was going in the body. And I found one of the things I found really fascinating was this, this term that a lot of medical scientists don't want to even acknowledge called mucoid plaque. Mm. And muc- mucoid plaque, I discovered, was you know, when we combine you know, certain foods or when we eat in certain states in the body to protect itself from the acidic nature of the environment that it creates to, to, to be able to digest and process some of these combinations of foods, it will produce mm. mucus around the foods and then pass that pass the food into the digestive tract into the intestines and then that mucus can then coat the phylli and then it mm. can actually over time it can build up and then it can actually turn into this rubber like substance now i thought this was mystical until i actually mm. had it come out of my own body until i actually saw you know uh, feet and in some cases multiple feet of this tubing that had come out of people's mm. body. But what I found most interesting, and again, I love I wish, thankfully we've got this all on video. <laughs> One of the things I found most interesting, and I'd be really interested to hear your take on this. Uh, I remember um, I was reading this, it was a quite a, an alternative perspective health book. Mm. And it was talking about the, the emotions that we experience in the moment of eating are actually imprinted on the food. And the quality of that food will determine obviously how it's digested and whether or not it produces this mucus that can then be mm. deposited on the line of the wall uh, and then that that mucus that is deposited in the lining of the walls will also then contain not only the mucus but it'll also contain a resonance of the energy mm. that was imprinted on it when it was consumed and I remember reading this thing this is a little bit out there Fast it is. Forward, it is. Mm. Fast forward two years. Uh, I'm in the midst of um, a, a 10-day fast. I think I was on like day four or day five. Uh, I was having one colonic a day. Uh, mm. And we used to have four psyllium husk shakes, uh, psyllium husk and bentonite shakes a day. Mm. And I used to do what I used to call my, uh, my colonic meditation. So I'd sit there and meditate. And I'd just tune into my gut. And I'd go to where it felt uncomfortable. And I'd massage. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere... I felt this enormous pain. Like it was like overwhelming. It was like vibrations going through my body. And then I literally, my memory went back to an argument that I'd had with a girlfriend when I was about 19 years of age. I remember I was on the side of the road in Brisbane. I was eating, I just, I was on my second hot dog and I was drinking a, drinking a strawberry flavored milk. Now this was a very um, intense argument. It wasn't physical, but it was incredibly intense, incredibly emotional. Like it was intense. Mm. And then all of a sudden that memory disappeared and something exited my body into the basket that literally looked like an alien from another planet. <laughs> oh, God. But it was at that point I was like, wow, okay, mm. maybe there's actually something in this. So is it fair to say that we need to be also not only conscious of the foods that we eat and when we eat them, how we eat them, but also the state, the emotion, the, mm. co- the level of consciousness that we apply to the moment when we're actually consuming food? Yeah, well, look, 
I, I haven't seen any scientific evidence to, to talk about things like mu mucuses are produced naturally by the yeah. lining of your gut. And that's part of, and actually mucus also serves as, as the fuel source for many of the bugs living in your gut. So there's this balance between producing the right amount of mucus and, and the right amount of it actually being degraded and fermented by, by the bugs in there. That's all an important part of the process. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very much a scientist who needs to see that's kind of empirical evidence to, yeah. to see if anything like that exists. As for whether so emotions never can be wrapped up in there, I'm never, very, no. no okay, and I've not seen right. a paper about that. You need to do, I'll, I'll, I'll send you some photos. Some, oh, oh, do I want to see them? No, you do I not. don't know. I would change our relationship to a level I'm not comfortable with so. right now. Yeah. Um, I, as for things like colonics and what, you know, I hear all sorts of stuff from people who say, oh, I had a colonic and all this stuff came out of me. There's, there's, there's you know, I, I actually sort of feel like... You shouldn't be putting stuff up your gut. The, the gut is designed to go from top down. And if you're eating properly and you're not getting constipated, then actually that system should be working really well and you shouldn't need to be having colonics. So that's the other thing on, on that. As when it comes to emotions, what we certainly know is that emotions are connected to your gut function. So if you eat in a state where you're really angry or you're really stressed or you're really upset, then there's absolutely no doubt that you're impacting on your gut function because you're in that emotional state. So, I mean, the easiest way for anyone to understand how emotions affect your gut is just think about when you're really nervous about something. So I know you do some public speaking as I do. If I'm doing a really big event and I'm a bit nervous about it, what's the thing that happens so often? You run to the loo. You know, and so anytime that you're doing something that you're nervous or just getting butterflies in your stomach, you can feel even some of the terminology we use, a gut feeling. You get a gut feeling or a gut sense. You know, so the terminology in our language shows us that the gut is intimately connected to our emotions. So that I I firmly believe. And so do, do we need to be very careful of the state, the emotional state that we're in when we, because that, does yeah. that have an, a direct impact on our ability to, because for example, I know when we um, experience uh, a stress stimulus, mm. body releases cortisol, adrenaline, mm. a number of other biochemical factors are going into play. But one of the things that I've read is it actually, there is a certain things that are, I think it's the cortisol that inhibits the ability for the guts to digest certain proteins that enable the brain to function at a high mm. level and as a result we can reduce our IQ by as much as 30 to 50 percent. Well I don't know that I, I that there, are, there certainly isn't evidence that that it will lower your IQ and and if we're talking acutely or chronically stress certainly impacts yeah. on your brain function whether or not it's 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 via the diet and we certainly know that the diet affects I mean this is what I'm writing yep. about at the moment is how your diet and your lifestyle affect your brain power your performance of your brain I often talk you know my corporate talks um, I often speak about what how can you be at your most creative how can you be at your highest energy level how can you work and make your brain work effectively but also how do you help your brain to age as well as it can and mm. reduce your risk of cognitive decline and dementia and so on as you get older and we've got a lot of evidence there behind how a good healthy balanced diet um, and a good healthy gut actually impacts your brain long term so we certainly know about that what I think will certainly happen is if you eat when you're in a highly stressed um, state you're actually in fight or flight yeah. reaction so you know in the past our ancestors had more of acute stress and very little chronic stress although of course there could be some chronic stress you know to do with illness or you know finding enough food or whatever but mostly it'd be acute stress so it's the 
you know, typical scenario of running from danger. So you get this, that's why you get this drive of cortisol, of adrenaline. And what it does is, is usually it will empty your bowels so it's often why you go to the toilet when you're really stressed. You want to empty your bowels to make your body lighter to then be able to run. So the blood is diverted to muscles, to your brain, in order to be able to deal either fight or flight. And of course, the body at that point, the priority is not to be digesting food. So if you're eating in a very stressed state, then yes, your, your ability to digest and metabolize that food is reduced. And therefore, you're, you're, you're going to get indigestion. You're going to feel discomfort. There's going to be more fermentation going on there, gas production and so on and you've likely you know uh, impacted on your digestion what we what we certainly is not going to happen though is it doesn't mean that you know suddenly you don't get the same kilojoules unfortunately out of your food <laughs> we're very good at extracting kilojoules from food particularly if you're eating a lot of processed food you know you've taken away the body's work instead of eating a plant in its whole form something like whole, a whole grain and you've refined it down and you've just pulled out the sort of starchy center of the grain and you've refined it and mixed it with sugar and made it into your donut you've made it very easy for the body to get that energy without breaking down any fibers without breaking down plant cell walls and so on so we get instant energy, but we get low nutrients. So that's something that nutrition science is deeply looking at, is the difference between energy density of foods, how many kilojoules in every bite, versus nutrient density, how many nutrients are you really getting? And that's what we see in typical kind of Western style diets where we've got very energy dense food. We've got no trouble getting our kilojoules, mm. but people are malnourished because they're eating nutrient, poor nutrient dense foods. Which is what we're seeing obese people who are experiencing malnutrition. Yeah. Which is kind of ironic when you think about it. Exactly. And we see things like, you know, I was talking with uh, one of the meetings I was in this week. There was a GP in that meeting talking about the number of kids she's seeing these days with constipation coming in with ab abdominal pain. And the parents don't believe when she says, actually, you're your kid is constipated and the second thing is iron deficiency so you know when I first um, studied as a dietitian over 20 years ago now um, you know we were told oh you'll hardly ever see true overt nutrient deficiencies you'll possibly see a bit of iron deficiency now we're seeing mm. you know vitamin D deficiency folate deficiency we see um, and, and iron deficiency is the most common uh, deficiency worldwide for all sorts of different reasons. So, you know, we really are seeing malnourished humans now, which, you know, in a country like Australia shouldn't be happening. And I think what I'm also seeing, and it's an epidemic that I think has been going in the US for a while, but I'm seeing it creep into Australia. Um, there's antacid medications that seem to be taking up mm. more and more shelf space. These antacid delivery systems, you know, <clears> gone from, you know, from a tablet to chewable tablets to lozenges to drinks. Yeah. So. Reflux seems to be an issue that is not just for babies anymore. What is reflux? Yeah. What can we do to deal with it from a diet perspective? And if we perhaps are dealing with it, are there some quick fixes that we can use that are a little bit healthier than you know, grabbing sure. a pill off a pack? Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, reflux is a sign that the upper part of your of your gastrointestinal tract is not working effectively. At the bottom of the esophagus is the tube that carries food down from the mouth to the top of the stomach. And there's a circular muscle there, a sphincter muscle, that is supposed to keep the, the stomach contents are very acid. That's in order to kill any bugs that have come in with your food and to help the digestive process start 
starting. So carbohydrate digestion actually starts here. It starts in the mouth, actually, but it's because starting, you know, digestion starts to take place in the stomach. And it's designed to stop the movement of the stuff in the stomach coming back up into the esophagus. The stomach lining has a lot of mucus there. It's got a very special lining so that the stomach lining can't be damaged by the acid, but the esophagus doesn't. So heartburn is when you've got stuff coming back through this little circular muscle and it's effectively burning the sides of the esophagus. Now, it sounds like, oh, well, I just, you know, down some Gaviscon, that's all I need to do. You're just treating the symptoms. You're not treating the cause. You're not treating what is wrong. Why is this little muscle allowing stomach contents to come back up? So we've got to look at why that's happening. And, and lots of things are, can be helpful. Making sure you sit up after you finish eating. Don't go and lounge on the sofa or go and lie down. Eating too close to bed, you know, you're almost likely certain to get heartburn if you're continually lying down immediately after or even, you know, within a couple of hours of eating when you've still got stomach contents there. Eating too much, so eating a really big meal, you're then putting pressure. Uh, being overweight, being pregnant, of course, both of those things are putting pressure on the stomach, pushing stomach contents up. Some people um, have various things that make the muscles relax a bit more. And so that once that muscle is damaged, it can be, that's when you really might need some medical help there to, to sort of help repair. But you need to help the muscle and the, and the esophagus to repair. So eating small meals more often, things like ginger can be really, really helpful. Mm. Um, and I would be advising to really avoid, to, if you're having to take antacids regularly, you need to see your doctor and, and uh, or see a dietitian. Try a dietary lifestyle approach first. Um, because actually what you're doing is you're, you're making, uh, creating problems further down the line. If you're continually taking antacids, you're, you're potentially, um, one, you're, you're, you're not allowing the body to do its job. You know, the stomach's acid for a reason, but you're potentially also making your body then either produce more acid and an attempt to do it, which makes it then more difficult for you to get mm. off the antacids. But there's all sorts of gut problems that can happen down the line if you're continually taking those medications. Yeah, right. And that's, I used to experience, uh, I, I, most of my life I experienced reflux. Mm. And what's interesting is as soon as I went into the intermittent fasting protocols, completely gone. It's gone away. Yeah, yeah. totally gone away completely. Yeah. Which is interesting. Well, some people also find there's trigger foods, you know, yeah. if they do have too much junk well, food or they have funny. too much. You know, you and, know. I, and I was one of those people. It was certain trigger foods uh, that would happen. That it would, so I couldn't eat. Pa if I ate pasta and a protein mm. with the pasta, I'd get reflux. Mm. Reflux every single time. Yeah. Whereas now, like last night, I went out and, um, and I don't do this very often anymore, but I had um, a, like a meat pizza mm. and a meat pasta. And I, I had a deep, like I had pretty much a whole pizza and pretty much a big piece of pasta. And I know, you know, going back two years ago, two and a half years ago, I'll eat that meal and i'd be suffering for hours mm -hmm. last time i ate that meal and not and only did okay. i not swell up but there was no reflux and you know i got on with the rest of my evening mm. without any dramas whatsoever yeah so your stomach is working effectively you know yeah. it may well be because the trouble is if you get reflux regularly you're actually you know that the muscle itself is inflamed and you're much more likely to get more reflux yeah, right. so it might well be that you've just your gut is now functioning as it should and that that little sphincter is doing its job and so it was able to to keep that food down and your your stomach is in a healthier situation. Mm. I think the other important thing to say is if you've got stomach problems, you know, um, and you get stomach pain, um, then see your doctor because that can also be an infection that's in the stomach. So there's a little bug. We used to think that stomach ulcers were caused by yeah. stress. Yeah, no. And now we understand that actually something like 95, it might even be higher than that percent of stomach ulcers are caused by helicobacter, um, which is a little bug. Uh, and so now it can be treated with antibiotics. I'm, mm. I'm against using antibiotics unless they're absolutely necessary. Yeah, but that's a, that's 
one time when you need an antibiotic to knock that bug out. And then suddenly your, your stomach can repair and your stomach then functions normally. Fantastic. This has been a very enlightening conversation. And the beauty about these conversations, I never plan where they're going to go. I just let them mm. unfold. Uh, and when the fact that we've talked about gut, we've talked about poo, we've talked about diet. Um, the only thing we haven't talked about, though, is exercise um, mm. and mobility. We touched on it as a part yeah. of the process. But when it comes to exercise and mobility, because I think some people look at exercise as something that's hard. You know, I don't want to mm. sweat. You know, well, after all, sweat is fat crying. But when we look at exercise, you, you said I, I like to distinguish exercise and activity as two different mm. things. So you know we've talked about the psychology of good health, and we've talked about um, the, the 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 mechanics of good health from a diet perspective, the importance of you know a healthy gut in order to be healthy. Um, mm. But we haven't talked about that the mobility. We haven't talked about the exercise. Yeah. What, what and again, most people go, well, I walk to the, the train every morning. That's their baseline. Yeah. What is the baseline level of exercise? and or activity that we should be doing mm. if we want to be healthy. Well, the first thing is that there's a nice link there from gut to yeah. uh, to being active because, in fact, a lot of people with gut problems, uh, the, those problems are really stemming from the amount of time we spend sitting down. So sitting down is not good for the gut. So I always say, you know, you will rarely find a constipated runner because immediately mm. that you move, even if it's brisk walking, you know, try if people who are constipated, I say go for a brisk walk and, and see what happens because as soon as you move and you're, you're energized and, you're, and your muscles are working, actually it stimulates the gut to contract too. So those are intimately linked. The second question about how much do we need to do? Well, I talked earlier about the blue zones. When we look at the blue zones, those people are just more active every day. So the Japanese are a good example. One of the blue zones is Okinawa. That's one of the prefectures of Japan. In Okinawa, they dance and do tai chi and they garden. They're big gardeners and they do that right late into life. You know, when we look at uh, some of the Greek cultures or whatever, again, there's gardening, there's this sort of uh, more traditional lifestyles, the the Seventh-day Adventists in, in California. Again, they have these more active lifestyles. So it's, I tend to encourage people to think about activity first and foremost, limiting or breaking up your sitting time. Stand, if it's possible to stand rather than sit, do so. You know, invest in a standing desk or, you know, I work from home, so I, I have a seated desk, but I can hop up and hang up a load of washing or, you know, go and water the plants or take a mm. break and go and walk my dog. You know, just building those little bursts of activity into your day are incredibly important. And then if you can, layer over the top some actual exercise. So if you can start with a baseline of, of a half hour walk every day is a really great start. So that walking to the train station or walking from the, at the other end to your work is great. If you can build that up to make sure that you at least do half an hour over the course mm-hmm. of the day, that's a baseline. And then try and build up from there. You know, Fitbits and Jawbones and all those sorts of things. Activity trackers are, are great because then you can start going, okay, I've got to hit that magical 10,000 steps. Yeah, it makes it fun I find a lot of guys like that because men tend to like numbers and have a figure on there that you've got to aim for. Something to compete with. Yeah, Yeah. and compete with your mates or, you know, my family are spread around the world and we had a little family competition and you could see everyone's steps on there and it got quite competitive and I've got to say my mum is the clear winner. (laughs) (laughs) She nails the rest of us. She's regularly doing 15,000 steps every day. So go mum. She's in her 70s now. So yeah, so, so those kind of things can be really helpful. Then if you can, the, the sort of icing on the cake is then to start thinking more about formal exercise. And if you can do, you know, weight training two or three times a week, the, the last people, I've, I've said this for a long time, the last people that should be in the gym doing weight training are the big buff young guys. It should be everyone over the age of 35 mm-hmm. and, and, and women in particular. You know, that's how we started um, 
before we were discussing on air here, where we were t- talking about anti-aging. One of the best things you can do to A, control your weight, but also to age well, is to maintain your muscle mass or even build some mm. muscle mass later in life. So mm. if you can get some sort of resistance training happening, it doesn't have to be in the gym with weights. It can just be doing calisthenics. some push-ups and oh, calisthenics is power making a yoga. Comeback. I'm yeah. telling you right now, it's going to make a huge comeback. Anything that involves using your muscle. You know, if you don't use muscle, yeah. you're gradually going to you, you lose it over yeah. the years. Um, and that's incredibly important. So, so think of it in those layers. What's the baseline? When I'm ticking that box, then move up the layers until you can, you know, be adding some exercise regularly into your week. And, and I like the moderation component. And also, I think we need to kind of break a few myths about how much exercise needs to be done. And mm. look, you might have a different perspective on this, but you know, I was a competitive athlete, competitive bodybuilder, competitive uh, powerlifter, you know, up until the age of around 22. Uh, and then from 22 until like my probably late 20s, early 30s, I still trained. But my idea of training was six days a week, alternating yeah. muscle groups, hour in the morning, hour in the evening, just for weight resistance, and then yeah. you know cardio on the rest day. What's interesting now, as I've gotten older, and I ended up with a very broken body, mm-hmm. you know, lots of injuries. Uh, and then last year was the year of the body where I literally went around my entire body bit by bit by bit, got the surgeries I needed to do. And what's interesting also about the intermittent fasting, I've had injuries that I've had for mm-hmm. 10, 15 years that have spontaneously healed just without mm-hmm. any exercise, without any rehabilitation, just by the restriction of calories over time. Yeah. But to get to my point, since I've started exercising again only a few months ago, I'm exercising for maybe if I'm lucky... 20 to 30 minutes, maybe mm. three times a week, all calisthenics, all body yeah. resistance. And yeah. my body is in now in better shape than, than it mm. was in my mid-20s when I was punishing it on a regular basis, mm. which kind of leads to this interesting quote that was given to me by Jack Zublak, a client of mine. He says, Kerwin, he says, you're trying to punish the body you hate versus yeah. create the body that you love. Yeah. And that for me was a huge shift in the psychology of because you know I used to go to the gym and go I'm gonna fuck I'm gonna punish myself because that was mm. my psychology. My psychology was if I want to be fit and healthy, then I have to experience high levels yeah. of pain. Now I think yeah. there's a little bit of truth in that from a weight resistance perspective, but I was going way too far. So is it fair to say yeah. that the para- there's been a significant paradigm shift in the amount of exercise that we think we need to do in order to be fit and healthy? Yeah, well, I think part of that also comes down to a mindset. And the other thing that, that was occurring to me that I have learned as well is that, that you have to change the type of exercise you're mm. doing as you get older. You know, your body's needs are different. And I see so many people now, you know, I'm in my 40s now, and, and the exercise I'm so doing good, now right? compared to, I love being oh, in my 40s. It's, it's a great 20s. decade. Yeah. The exercise I'm doing now is very different to yeah. when I was teaching, you know, I, at one point I was teaching 20 fitness classes every week and, and wow. slamming my body that way. Um, so I couldn't agree with you more that we definitely have to change the, the way that we are. But part of it is also that mindset of, you know, probably because you were an athlete and you were used to those very high levels of training. At that time, if I had suggested to you, you know what, you could do 20 minutes, half an hour and have a really great workout, you wouldn't have believed me because you'd come from this space. Mm. Whereas other people are not exercising at all, it's, you know, for them to think, oh, I've got to do an hour in the morning, an hour at night, that's ridiculous. So, you know, I, I think you've got to change what you're doing over time and you've got to recognize that, yes, if you overtrain, that can be just as damaging. You know, I've got lots of colleagues of mine in the fitness industry who are now getting knee replacements and hip mm. replacements and because they've just slammed their bodies too hard. So it's, uh, you know, exercise is that balance. Exercise science has moved on too. You know, we are understanding, you know, look at the way that gyms have changed. I've just moved down to Maroubra and it's a brilliant fitness first near us, great gym. And what I'm loving is they've got all these different areas and functional fitness has become a huge thing. Mm. So there's a whole area of the gym that's dedicated to 
using body weight, using resistance, you know, and with the help of things like TRXs or pushing a sledge or, or working with, with, you know, all sorts of different kinds of tools to work out in a very different way to that sort of traditional, I'm going to go and lift weights in the gym. So that's still there too. But it's finding what's going to work for your body. And that's where, you know, engaging the help of an exercise physiologist or a really good personal trainer can be very, very helpful or just going along to a really great class. Mm. But, you know, we've also had the rise and think there's exercise out there for everyone. You know, I've always been a fan of, of group exercise because it's a, I think it's a good way mm. to motivate and, and it's affordable compared to things like personal training for everyone to get involved with. But now, you know, I look at the, the way the classes have changed. You know, those old style classes are very dancey, kind of girly. You know, I started in the Jane Fonda era of thong leotards and, and leg warmers. Oh, we're, we're probably around the same age. <laughs> yeah, Reebok step. You know, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, all that stuff. Very fancy um, choreographed yeah. classes that I used to teach at City Gym. To now, there's lots of, there's City lots gym. more men. City Gym. City Gym. Oh my yeah. God. Do you remember those days? Yeah, of course I do. <laughs> that was my first membership. Yeah, yeah well, there right. you go. Oh, yeah, I used yeah. to teach some of those fancy classes up there. And and now we see a whole load more men in classes because we've got really athletic classes, great things like power yoga and all sorts of different styles of yoga from more meditative to, to more power. We've got Pilates classes, there's mind body and body balance and and, and all sorts of different circuit style training classes. So, you know, there really is something for everyone. So, you know, exercise is more accessible than ever before. And, and so is information. And I mm. think we live in an age where, and I, and I don't mean to come across harsh, but maybe this is a kick up the ass that some people need. There really is no excuse to be unhealthy unless you've got mm. some kind of a chronic illness. And even if you do have a chronic illness, then you have more of an incentive to be healthy than ever before. Mm. Dr. Joe, you have been an absolute pleasure to talk to. Uh, I think we're going to have to get you back in here for, oh, for, for, another, for another conversation. Thank you. Um, for those people who want to find out more about you, do we have mm. a book? Do we have a website? How can they do? I have both. Yeah. All right. So the website is drjoanna.com.au. It's drjoanna. Um, so come to the website. You can find out about my Get Lean program. You can find out about me. You can co- you know contact me if you're interested in me speaking at an event. Um, and my latest book, I've done, I've done six books so far. I'm writing another one at the moment. But the latest one is Get Lean, Stay Lean, which is really actually a lot of the things we've talked about. The, those six steps and the underpinning of joy is, is the foundation of Get Lean staline and it's a lifestyle program it's and, that's, and i think that's really important for everyone to take home is that what we're talking about here is is a lifestyle yeah you know and success is a lifestyle whether it's as a performance athlete whereas it's a business owner or someone who just wants to experience greater levels of you know health and vibrancy it's really got to become a lifestyle absolutely and Do- it's got to be joyful yeah dr joe make it fun and what i will say is if you follow her diet and you, you clearly don't look like you're in your 40s so whatever you're doing oh, is working good. incredibly well <laughs> <laughs> so check out our book check out our website but ladies and gentlemen thank uh, big thanks for dr joe thanks Zip- Thank you for coming. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And do me a favor. Don't forget to drop me a review on iTunes. Would love to hear what you think. I love reading what you guys have to say. And your reviews make sure we keep creating killer content just like this. If you want to stay up to date with me and all my movements, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com. And also check us out on social media at Kerwin Ray. 